Well, good morning, everyone. Ladies, that was really wonderful. So you're going to be singing at the concert next week, right? So all of you that were not planning on coming to the concert, I hope you've changed your mind. It was a real blessing. As we've been studying the past <clears throat> several weeks, actually, on and off, um, we've been coming to the cross and trying to understand Jesus' death from a variety of different angles, exploring a number of the metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about Christ's death. And this morning, I'd like to look at the metaphor of the victory, the victory in Christ or the victorious Christ. Now, uh, Mike mentioned earlier that today is the sixth year anniversary of our starting this church, which is a real blessing. Um, on Sunday was another anniversary. Anybody know what that was? Yeah, it was Pearl Harbor Day was Sunday. Um, not a personal anniversary for any of us, obviously, but a fairly significant event in world history. And as I thought about Pearl Harbor and I thought about the battle that we find ourselves in, the spiritual battle, I was reminded of Winston Churchill's first address when he became the um, Prime Minister of England and he spoke to the Parliament in England. He said this in his first address. He said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Winston Churchill was a pretty smart man. I think he was directly alluding to the death of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, you ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, it is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Without victory, there is no survival. And obviously he was talking about the dissolution of society as he knew it. But that's a very important point, isn't it? Without victory at the death of Jesus Christ, there really is no survival for this world. Without victory in our personal lives, there's no survival either. So let's turn this morning, and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians and read through um, a passage. I invite you to turn with me there to chapter 2. And I appreciate Craig reading that, Craig reading that earlier. And this is a particularly naughty passage in that there are phrases in it that we really need to think about, and there's questions about the grammar, so um, <clears throat> hope you're with me this morning. But first of all, we want to recognize throughout, throughout the New Testament, there is this atmosphere of triumph. There's an atmosphere of victory, and that victory is directly related to the death of Jesus. For example, in Revelation chapter 5, in verse, verses 5 and 6, it talks about the lamb who has overcome and that lamb is pictured as having been slain. So John in Revelation makes a direct correlation between victory and what takes place in the death of Jesus. Revelation 12, 11, it talks about you and talks about me, where it says that God's people will overcome him, overcome the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. So again, this concept of victory... 2 Corinthians 
excuse me, 2 Corinthians 2 in verse 14 tells us that God always leads us in triumph, always leads us in victory. Now that's really exciting. Your life may not look like that. Jesus' life didn't look like that. But from the heavenly perspective, God always leads his people in triumph. And then, of course, Romans 8, 37, that famous passage that Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's what God wants our life to be. A series of uninterrupted victories, not seen so in this world, but seen that way in the hereafter. And all of our experiences are based on his experience at the cross. And again, we've looked at um, his death in a number of ways. When we think of his death in relation to victory, there are several aspects of it. Actually, we could probably have a whole series just on this idea of victory. But first of all, the victory was predicted in the Garden of Eden, where in Genesis 3.15, there's the promise that someone is going to come to deliver us, that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that victory began in the life of Jesus, in his earthly life. As all through his life, he was faced with temptations, but said no to every one of those temptations. He condemned sin in the flesh. He constantly resisted those temptations. But that victory culminated reached its apex, its highest point, when Jesus yielded up his life at Calvary. So that's what we really want <clears throat> to look at this morning. And when we think about that, and if you think about Jesus' death momentarily, it's very counterintuitive that his death is a victory. The people that were standing at the foot of the cross, they did not see it as a victory. What did they see it as? Complete failure, defeat. The cross in Jesus' day, in the time of the Roman Empire, was a symbol of the oppressor. And so here's a man, convicted by the state, spread-eagled, hung up before people. That did not look like a victory. But it was. Uh, John Stott, who um, used to be an Anglican preacher he passed away a couple of years ago, he said this, if there is victory at the cross, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. If you look at the cross from an earthly point of view, from a human perspective, that's what looks like taking place. You know, brothers and sisters, often in our lives, we look at things from the wrong point of view. Sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes we hurt other people. We look at things in the world, and sometimes we think, well, this is just a victory for the devil, or this is a victory of pride or jealousy or cowardice. Of course, John Stott goes on also to talk about the victory that is at the cross, and it's a victory of love. It's a victory of self-sacrifice. And that's really important for us to understand, that God conquers through self-sacrifice continually, entirely. So um, let's turn here to Colossians chapter 2. And as we kind of go through, there are <clears throat> seven verbs I want to highlight for us as we go through this passage. And uh, it's important for us to kind of keep in mind 
who's acting and get our pronouns correct. So Colossians chapter 2 in verse 13, first of all. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him. Let's just pause there. First of all, what's our condition? Dead. Just, not just dead, but dead. Good dead, like finished. Dead in your, your sins, your ungodliness, your transgressions. Dead bodies can't do very much, can they? It's important for us to realize that that is our condition outside of Christ. Dead in transgressions. But who's the he in the verse? So it's real clear who the us is. That's obviously us. Who's the he? That's God. And if you just look back up um, in the previous verse, you'll see that, that it was God that raised Christ from, his, from the dead. So God is the actor, the active agent, at least at this part in the passage. So God did something for us. What did he do? He made us alive together with him, with Christ. And then he begins, Paul does, to explain that a little bit more fully. But before we do, let's just think about this situation. If somebody is dead and they are made alive, what would you call that? Well, yes, you'd call it a resurrection. True. What else would you call it? You would call it a miracle, right? I remember when... Pope John Paul died. I was in Africa, and I remember driving down from my house in a little vehicle listening to a BBC radio, and they were talking about it, and actually it was his funeral, and I just had this little mental picture in my head. I said, boy, I wonder what it would be like if he, if he raised back up. Wouldn't that be exciting? Um, and it certainly would have been a newsworthy event at the very least. It would have been a miracle. The fact that you're here today is a miracle. Dead in trespasses, in transgressions. But God has made you alive with Christ. That's God's aim for each one of us. To have that miracle take place in our lives. And when we struggle with the things we struggle with internally, the pride, the anger, the hurt, all those things, we need to remember we need a miracle. Whose activity is it? God. God has made you alive together with him. And let's continue on in the verse. What's the next part of the verse say? He's made made us alive together with him, having done something, having forgiven us all our trespasses or transgressions. Now, if you have the King James, that's what it says, having forgiven us Uh, having forgiven you, actually it's what the King James says, having forgiven you all your trespasses, the more modern translations say he has forgiven us. And I think that's what Paul does. I think the modern translations are correct here, where Paul, he puts himself right in the midst. He's talking to these people in the church, and he says, you know, God raised you up, but I'm included as well. An important part of the gospel, that every one of us are in need together. No one else has a as a leg up in the not needing a miracle. So he has forgiven us 
all our transgressions. And it's interesting, this word forgiven, Paul only uses it a couple of times in this way. It's really a legal term. And in our past couple of sermons, we looked at the legal aspect of what's happening in Christ's death. But again, he's made us alive together with him, and he's forgiven us. What has he forgiven us? How much? Ah, really? Sorry. What has he forgiven us? All our transgressions. Is there any transgression that he has not forgiven you? Well, you might be able to argue, and I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, but if I keep holding on to it, I'm going to be lost, and I agree with that. But remember we talked about reconciliation from God's side. God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world unto himself. And our embracing of the forgiveness is based on what God did in Christ at the cross. He's made us alive. That's a miracle. He has forgiven us all our transgressions. That is a miracle. And then a, th- a third um, point here. So he's made us alive. He's forgiven us. Verse 14. In verse 14, it, we're going to need to think about a little bit. Um, the King James says, he blotted out. Someone read that, verse 14, the first part. What does it say? He blotted out the handwriting contained in ordinances, the handwriting of ordinances. And if you have a different translation, I put a number of them on the screen here for us. He blotted it out. He canceled it. He erased it. He wiped it away. So here we're thinking about the whole record of sin and everything. And what does it say? Well, he forgave us. And now Paul goes a little further and he says, he has wiped it gone. He's blotted it out. He has canceled it. What is it that he's canceled? This is kind of a little question here. Um, The King James says, again, the handwriting of ordinances. Someone else may have a different translation. It's very clear that this is a handwritten document. What does it mean? Well, if you'll read different Bible commentators, they'll say different things. Um, Some that I've read actually say, well, this is the law of God. It's interesting that the law is never mentioned in the book of Colossians at all. So to say this is the law of God means you're importing some thoughts there. Uh, some other, other individuals will say, no, this is really talking about the ceremonial law. And if you just want to jot down Deuteronomy 31:26, it describes in Deuteronomy how the ceremonial law, which was handwritten, was put in the side of the ark as a witness against us. So there's a, there's a connection there. Um, and the whole purpose of the ceremonial law was what? Why did God give the ceremonial law? What was its function? Well, it was to point us to Christ. So it was the moral law to point us to Christ. Um, what did the ceremonial law largely concern? Sacrifices. Sacrifices that when you sinned, Okay, this is what you were to do to point us in a direction. And so perhaps Paul is saying, hey, this handwritten code is gone because there's no more reminder of the sacrifice of sin. That's an entirely possible and defensible position. But there's another position as well, which was very current in John's day, excuse me, in Paul's day. 
Um, and in, in Philemon, in verse 19, Philemon tells Philemon to, he tells Onesimus that I'm going to write a note, handwritten, put everything that he owes you against my charge. I'm writing it with my own hand. And this expression, handwriting, was often connected to some kind of a, let's call it an IOU. If you owe someone something, you would just write it and sign it and say, yeah, this is what I owe. This is my debt. In fact, some of the newer translations translate this as a certificate of debt. What is our debt to God? Our lives, everything. We owe him everything. We've transgressed his law. We've broken it. We've been in rebellion. Our debt is astronomical. Anybody here have a home mortgage? You know, sometimes it weighs our bills. Maybe you don't have a home mortgage. Credit card debt, debt. Debt can be crushing, can't it? What has God done with our debt? He has erased it. He has canceled it. He has wiped it away. He has blotted it out. Beautiful picture. We've been made alive. Why? Well, we're forgiven. You know, this thing that's against us is blotted out. And then on top of all this, Paul says something else in the next uh, little phrase in verse 14. What has he done with this? Verse 14, he's canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees that was against us. It was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's taken it out of the way, taken it out of the midst. You and I should not have a guilty conscience. The debt has been paid. It's been removed. It's gone. It's been lifted up. It's been blotted out. You have been forgiven. And so has your neighbor. And so has the person that irritates you the most. And and so this is what God is doing for us. And as we understand the cross and as we've been looking at the cross in in terms of how do we communicate this to people, so many different sides of the the beauty of Jesus' death, different aspects of the metaphor that we can tell people. You're struggling with something? Hey, God's on your side. He's working a miracle in your life. This is what God has accomplished in Christ. And then, as the last part says, he has nailed it to the cross. Some Scholars think that, uh, Bible students think that this certificate of debt, well, when Jesus was crucified, what was placed on the cross above his head? Anybody remember what it said above his head? This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Why did they put that sign above his head on the cross? That was the charge. This is what this man was guilty of. He was guilty of claiming to be the king of the Jews. And in the sight of Rome, that was a crime. And so our crime has been nailed to the cross. Whatever your crime is, whatever my crime is, it has been blotted out, lifted up, taken away, nailed to the cross. Do you believe that? I hope you do no matter what you might wrestle with or struggle with, this is what the scriptures is telling us. This is what God's telling us. 
Now, you may be thinking, you know, Steve, you're supposed to be talking about victory, and all you're talking about is forgiveness. Well, this is where the victory comes, in understanding what God has done in reconciling us back to himself and exposing Satan for what he is, a liar. And when he begins to, you know, um, last night we went to hear the Messiah. It was nicely done. Uh, Star, again, playing on the organ. You know, depending on who plays the organ depends on what kind of sounds come out, right? If I were playing it, it wouldn't have sounded as nice. Uh, Who laughed? Uh, If I were playing it, it would not have sounded as nice as it did last night. You know, our conscience at times can be like an organ. And the question is, who's playing it? If Satan is there, you know, just hammering us down, at times we we need to listen to the voice of conscience. But the work of the Holy Spirit is always to encourage us, never to discourage us. And if we feel like the voice of conscience is just hammering me, hammering me, putting me down, maybe we're listening to the wrong voice. We need to realize my debt has been taken care of at the cross. Now Paul begins to talk about the victory. So forgive me, that was a lengthy introduction. Verse 15. Verse 15. Um, The King James says he spoiled, and other translations say he disarmed these principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. So a couple of things we need to figure out. First of all, who are these principalities? Who are these rulers and authorities? Well, Romans 8.38 clearly tells us that they're satanic powers, as does Ephesians 3.10. So these, the victory that Paul, excuse me, that Paul is describing in the life of Jesus is not simply a victory over Rome, although it is that. It is a victory over who was behind Rome, which was the devil. So there's this victory. But what does it mean that Jesus spoiled them or disarmed them? He gained the victory over it. That's true. But in a sense of disarming, well, let's think for a moment. And there's two ways I want us to think about this. First of all, If you disarm someone, you are taking their weapons away. What is Satan's greatest weapon? His two greatest weapons. Okay, accusations. He's the accuser of the brethren. And what was the other one, Belinda? He's lying. He is a deceiver. At the cross, all of those deceptions were disarmed. Satan had been lying from the very beginning of sin, the inception of sin. You can't trust God. You know, God is unjust. You know, Satan went around. No, don't listen to what God's saying. Listen to what I'm saying. Very, you know, insinuating to um, misrepresent the character of God. And at the cross, it's all exposed. Satan's lies are all exposed for what they are. He is disarmed at the cross. Problem is, we still wrestle with believing his lies. In the true sense of the battle, it's over. Clearly, he's been exposed as a fraud, as a cheat, as a deceiver. He has been disarmed. But there's another aspect of this word um, because although a lot of translations translate it as disarmed or spoiled, that's not the main intent of this word. If you have your Bibles open, you turn to Colossians chapter 3 in verse 9 just right across the page. In verse 9, 
Paul says, do not lie to one another since you have done what? You've taken off your old man with its practices. That's the exact same word that's used in in Colossians 2 and verse 15, that you've taken off your old man. The question is, in what way could Jesus have taken off the principalities and powers? The word comes from, you know, like to take off your jacket or something. What's Paul saying? I think another way to look at this is that all through the life of Christ, Satan and his angels were wrapped around Jesus continually harassing him, continually tempting him, continually over and again, you know, every moment coming to him, trying to lead him in sin. But at the death of Christ, the victory is complete. When Jesus was here on earth, he took uh, our human nature, he faced temptations, the powers of evil, evil continually gathered around him. At the cross, they are fully defeated. The cross is a sign of Satan's full defeat. The death of Jesus demonstrates the power of Christ's death over the forces of hell. The death of Jesus demonstrates that power. That power needs to be manifested in your life. That power was displayed at the cross. That power is unchangeable. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, has a power that will never be lost. It's a power that will never be overthrown. It's a power that needs to take place in your life. The blood of Jesus will never, never lose its power. Clearly shown at the cross of Jesus Christ. Transformative effect. And that's the point of this passage that there's victory at the cross of Christ. It's a victory over all the powers of hell. It's the victory over the strength of the devil. The cross is Satan's defeat. The passage continues, just quickly, verse 15 continues, that Jesus has made a public display of them, boldly, openly, before the assembled, unfallen universe. Christ has been seen as the victor and Satan as the defeated foe. Self-sacrifice is clearly seen to be the way God rules the universe. In the last part of the verse, Paul tells us that um, having, he made a public display over them, having triumphed over them through him or through it, depending on your translation. The image of this triumph comes from the, what the Roman emperors would do. When they would conquer a territory and they would come back home, the emperor would be in his chariot and running behind the chariot, kind of dragging along, were his captives. And here's the picture of Jesus Christ, the victor. How? Through love, through self-sacrifice. And that blood will never lose its power. And you and I need that power in our lives. We need to understand, yes, we live in a a battle zone. We live in in a battle zone greater than Winston Churchill lived in. But the only aim, the only way is victory. Victory means survival. The victory was predicted in the Garden of Eden. It began in Christ's life here on earth. 
It culminated in his death in the cross, but it's extended as you embrace it and I embrace it and we share it with others. So my appeal to you this morning is are you willing to embrace that victory? The fact that that your sin is gone, taken out of the way, removed from the cross, removed, nailed to the cross. We don't have to labor under that load of guilt any longer. What about in a very concrete way? Is there some aspect in your life in which Satan still has hold? Some desire of the flesh or some bitterness or, or some anything. Will you embrace the victory today? Will you embrace it and share it with others? It's our holiday season. It's Christmas time. We're thinking about the birth of Christ. But remember, that birth led to a death. And that death was the downfall of Satan's kingdom. It may look like it's still raging today. It may look still like it's victorious. But it is defeated. The blood of Jesus will never, never lose its power. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the victory that's in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your work through him, forgiving us, blotting out our transgressions, reconciling us to yourself. Thank you that as we see Jesus, we see you. And we thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, that today and this afternoon and tomorrow and for the rest of the week and for the rest of the year, for the rest of our lives, we would walk in the light of the victory that comes through the cross of Christ. Teach us, Lord, that true victory comes from self-sacrifice, from self-surrender to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.